And it's great to see all of you this morning, and we have concluded our study of the book of First Peter, which we entitled Courage Under Fire, so we'll be having that up on the radio pretty soon. And again, just an update, the radio ministry is going well. We started uh, in New York City and New Jersey a couple weeks back. We've been getting great response there, so God's doing some great things through His Word in other parts of the country, and I think Something that's so encouraging for me is just that idea that sometimes we only see the, our lives and the effects of our lives in our present visible geographic space. And because that's the case, because we're sort of limited to that kind of vision, sometimes we fail to see what God is doing in other parts of the world, in places we can't see, on people we haven't met, and yet God's Word is unchained. And it is going out, and it is accomplishing that for which God has sent it. So it's just an amazing thing to think of the power of the Word of God. So this morning, um, a natural progression from the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament is the book of Haggai in the Old Testament, right? Is that natural? It's your favorite book? No? Maybe not? When did you read, when did you read it last? Um, so I taught through the minor prophets. Um, they're only minor. I call them they're the major minor prophets because they're very important. We call them minor simply because their books are short. But they also tend to be minor in many people's estimation uh, in terms of importance. They just don't read them uh, very much. And so I was teaching the minor prophets uh, at Calvary Chapel Bible College in Marietta, and I, I just kind of fell in love uh, with the minor prophets. They were just absolutely amazing. They have a very, very powerful message to offer. And Haggai does so in just two chapters. It's a big message in just a little bit of space. And the reason I chose Haggai hereafter um, is because it touched on a topic that's been of fascination to me for years, and that's the, the idea of revival, spiritual revival. Um, I was in Cardiff, Wales. I interned at a church there back in 2001. So I was in Cardiff, Wales in the United Kingdom, interning at a church there. And if you, if you don't know church history, um, you won't know that a very important thing happened in Wales as far as Christianity is concerned. And it was called the Welsh Revival. And the Welsh Revival occurred in 1904 and 1905. And many people point to it as the precursor of global Pentecostalism. If you're not familiar with global Pentecostalism, it is the fastest growing segment of Christianity in the entire world. So it beats out Southern Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, and just about everybody else combined. Pentecostalism is just taking off. And it began there in 1904-1905 in Wales, and later in 1905-1906 in Los Angeles at what is known as the Azusa Street Revival. So I, I was taken on these tours of the place where the revival broke out and got to see the grave markers of Evan Roberts, the young man who, in a prayer meeting, wasn't a pastor, wasn't a preacher. Revivals don't start with pastors and preachers. They start with the average man or woman who simply wants more of God than they want of anything else. That's where revivals start. So the cool thing is here I am, a pastor, telling you if a revival is going to happen, it's not going to start with me. It's going to start with you. It's going to start with the people of God seeking the face of God because they desire it. And that can happen in an individual, and it does. But we don't call that a revival necessarily. 
What we call revival is it's sort of like a fire. It's just a match lit, but once dropped, it just sort of takes off. So a revival is these movements in history where it starts off with just one, two, three, four people, lay people, not professional clergymen, seeking the face of God, and suddenly it spreads rapidly to where hundreds and thousands and even hundreds of thousands and even millions are affected by what happened there. And the stories that I read in the Welsh Revival Edition newspapers, local newspaper actually had a Revival Edition newspaper, and I'm reading the original 1904-1905 papers in the Cardiff City Library, and there's story after story of how the Revival didn't just change this person's life or this person's life. The story of Revival is that it literally changed cities. Jails were emptied. And it wasn't prison reform. People simply stopped doing the things that put people in prison. How amazing is that? How is that for prison reform? The whiskey distilleries closed down. Not because of any teetotaling message like we tried to do in America. Kind of backfired, didn't it? But simply because people prefer to be drunk with the Spirit than drunk with whiskey. These things were systemic, and we call these revival. And so I and many others have become fascinated. Well, how does that happen? Uh, what, what can we do or what can we learn from the history of revival to see that happen in our day and in our cities? And I think one of the books I came across that I think encapsulates the blueprint, I'm calling it, of revival, the blueprint of revival is the book of Haggai. And so we're going to start this morning a four-part series, so it'll last four weeks. We're going to go through the book of Haggai, and we're going to see this blueprint for revival laid out in four steps. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the first and most important step of revival, and that's going to take place in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to open up to the book of Haggai. We're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. We'll have the passage up on the screen behind me. Please follow along with me now as I read the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, this people says, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, and yet this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. 
Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and in all the labor of your hands. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning and we pray just as sure as you spoke to Israel these many centuries ago through Haggai, we pray your Spirit would speak to us. Lord, I believe that in certain ways things have changed significantly since that time. So there's certain things that maybe we won't understand or we don't relate to. But I also believe that as human beings, there are certain things fundamental to our nature and to human experience living in this world that come through clearly if we have the eyes to see. So Lord, I pray you would reveal yourself to us. I pray you would examine us. I pray you would enable us to experience revival. I pray that you would give us obedient hearts and listening, attentive minds, and that we would hear what the Spirit has to say to the church this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so I'm going to go through chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Well, can you save your question until the end, Joe? Let's do it. Let's do it. Just write it down. All right, so I'm going to kind of give an introduction to the book of Haggai and to the prophets as a whole via the first verse, okay? So I'm going to comment on it. I'll spend a little bit more time here um, than I normally would because I realized for a lot of people, they don't, the Bible is a, a weird book. It's a strange book. They're like, what in the world's going on here? What does this have to do with it? What in the world's a prophet? Who is this God? Why are they so upset about this building? Who cares? What's going on? So I, I want to unpack a little bit about what's going on here. Um, so it says, in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, first day, word of the Lord, Haggai the prophet, Zerubbabel of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, Joshua the high priest. Okay, there's a lot of story that happened before that. And that right there is an important point to make. A lot of people look at the Bible simply as a book of rules. And indeed, it has rules. But it's actually a story. It's actually an epic narrative. It tells a story. It includes rules, don't get me wrong, but it is also a story. A lot of the idea where we get this from is sort of the unfortunate Greek, or I guess, yeah, it is Greek, uh, translation of the Hebrew word Torah, and it gets translated as namas, and namas um, just, it really has the central primary meaning of law, rules. So that's kind of where we get it in the Greek tradition. It means rules. But of course, in the Hebrew tradition, it actually meant instruction. It meant teaching. It was more than that. And, that, and that's quite obvious if you look at the Old Testament because you have a big story playing out. So one of the things that we need to do when we dive into a piece of Scripture such as Haggai is ask ourselves, where in the story is this? Very important. And then we always have to ask, where are we in the story? Because we may not be in the same place. So what's going on here? So remember, the big story is not just the story of Israel. Many people start there. Oh, well, it's the story of Israel, and you've got to understand how they became a nation. Well, that's actually not how the Bible starts. One of the things that's very fascinating, if you do comparative religious studies of the um, ancient Near East, is that most ancient myths only explain the beginning of their people group. 
They are particular histories. They say, this is where the Romans came from. This is our story. Their genesis, as it were, would simply explain how the Romans came to being, or the Etruscans, or the Akkadians, or the Babylonians, or whoever it is. That's their story. They, their people group, is at the center of the universe. And everyone else is just auxiliary to that. Now, while it is true that Israel came to think that way at various times in its history, it's not true that that's how the book of Genesis begins. One of the things that just leaps out to the student of comparative religions of that time is how the Bible offers what we call a universal history. It is a history of mankind. It doesn't just say, where did Israel come from? What did they get right? What did they get wrong? It's a bigger story. It's where did we all come from? Where did human beings come from? Where did all the peoples of the earth come from? Etruscans, Romans, Babylonians, and Jews alike. Where did we all come from? And so foundational that story is that we all come from one God. And that God did not birth us out of war or violence, as most religions say. They would say that the world was birthed out of murder, whether you look at Egyptian mythology, whether you look at Greek mythology, Babylonian mythology. Because we see violence in the world, we deduce, well, then that's, that must be where it came from. But the Judeo-Christian worldview is, no, God birthed the world out of love. And that there was only one God. And that God made all the peoples of the earth, not just one people. So where do we get Israel? Where do we get this focus where it's almost, the, the Hebrew Bible and Testament is almost all about Israel? Well, it's this idea that when humanity, who is made in God's image... It had perfect relationship with God. Think about this. In Genesis, when God first makes the world, there's no temple. There's no scriptures. There's no priests. There's no kings. None of the things that you probably think about when you read the Old Testament are there. Well, why is that? All of these things are only necessary once sin has come in and disrupted humanity's natural relationship to God. And what God promises there when the fellowship that humanity has with God is disrupted and distorted and broken because of sin, God has to banish humanity from His presence. And what you see is they go from this picture of God, and it says this, this you know, human language in, in Genesis, God walked with Adam, walked with him in the garden. It was that kind of personal relationship. But after sin is introduced, God wants to be there, but there's this banishment. So humanity's kind of connecting with God, but then they're not. And then they're coming up with weird ideas about God. Then they're saying, beginning with Cain, I'm going to worship God a different way. Yeah, I'll offer sacrifices, but I'm going to make my own religion. I'm going to make it in my image. I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'm not going to listen to what you said. And so you kind of get this spreading history of humanity clinging to the fact that they must have come from somewhere and that there's a God, and yet filling in the blanks with their own ideas, which are sometimes not just mistaken, but even evil. And so God takes an initiative and He steps forward and He says, I don't want to leave you in this condition. And so He creates a chosen line and it begins there with the promise in the Garden of Eden that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And you can begin following there in Genesis this line where there's always somebody. There's an Enoch. 
There's a Noah. There's a faithful line that preserves the knowledge of God. And then finally, you get to Genesis 11. And you get to the Tower of Babel, and then you get to Genesis 12. And that's where the focus on Israel comes. Now we're focused on Abraham. And then we're going to be focused on Israel. So it's important to understand when we're reading all these details regarding the political history of Israel, this has universal implications. Because this is the human medium through which God is working to bring people back to Himself. And one of the things that stands out again with the Bible is how it is integrated with real-world history. Most world religions don't even attempt to ground their religious claims in real-world history. They don't do it. Now, in the modern world, we kind of look at that, well, if it's not historical, then it's not true. Well, back in the ancient world, as a matter of fact, even in other religions today, people don't look at it that way. It's not about whether it's historical at all. It's about whether it's true for you or whether it simply functions as something that makes sense and enables you to live your life. That's really all they care about. But by our standards, it's interesting to point out that the religion of the Bible was always rooted in real time and space, in real history. That the timeless God who's not made of anything in the world is nevertheless working in the world, in real history. One of the things that stands out of Haggai is this is the most precise historical book in the Old Testament. We are actually given exact dates that we can cross-reference and we can know that this took place in exactly 520 B.C. Took place in 520. Now that's important because in 586, that's what I grew up with, scholars now say 587, whatever. 586, 587, what happened? The southern kingdom of Judah was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. And God promised that in 70 years this temple will be rebuilt, which seemed impossible given that the Babylonians deported the people of the southern kingdom, gave them new names, Babylonian names, to reorient them so they forget who they are and where they come from. And that's where you see Daniel. You see these young faithful Jewish men who, are, who won't bow the knee to the false gods of the alien land to which they have been brought. So the time has come where Babylon is overruled by Persia. And Cyrus the Great in 539 BC issues an edict that allows the Jews to return back to their homeland and rebuild their temple. That was 539. This is 520. Almost 19 years have passed. And what does this section of Scripture centrally speak about? Why have you not rebuilt my temple? You've been here for almost 20 years. Why have you not started on my temple? What's going on? And remember what a temple is. Both in Israel and in its neighboring nations. A temple is the place where heaven meets earth. That's the idea. Where the divine is manifest. Not just present in an abstract sense, but manifest so that the divine is experienced. So if God, because of sin, doesn't share this fellowship that Adam first had before sin, what does God do? He provides a way, and it's through the medium of the temple. So in other words, at this time, if you wanted fellowship with God, if you wanted to experience the presence of God, you needed the temple. 
So what does it say that they haven't built the temple? The people of God, whom God has chosen to be those who bear his truth, are no longer interested in his presence. This is a very, very powerful and troubling time. So God sends the prophet Haggai to fix this problem because it's, it's about Israel, but it's also about more than Israel. It's about the world. God's promise was not just to Abraham and just for some of his descendants, but God says to Abraham, through you, how many nations of the earth will be blessed? All the nations of the earth will be blessed. The world is writing on this. So God sends Haggai the prophet. And that's where we are in Haggai chapter 1. A couple of quick things, because maybe some of you are like, I don't know any of this. As a matter of fact, you might even say, I don't even know what a prophet is. Well, let's start there. What is a prophet? A prophet is a divinely appointed person who speaks for God. In Hebrew, it's navi. The Greek translates it as prophetes, which is where we get the word prophet. Let me give you two quick passages in Exodus that explains not just that a prophet, you know, sort of delivers a message and he's allowed to change it or whatever, but that a prophet is really the mouth of God. Look at these two verses. First one is Exodus 4.16, God speaking to Moses. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, that is Aaron, to you, because remember Moses says, I don't want the job, I don't want to do it, I'm not a good speaker, you know, whether he had a stutter or not, that's debated, but for whatever reason. He's arguing with God. He's like, I'm not sure I want to do it. And he says, he himself shall be, listen to this, as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him. And just to clarify that this is what he's saying, Exodus 7.1, so the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. So a prophet is the mouth of God. The very mouth of God. And some people go, oh, well, that's just a metaphor. And in a sense it is, but it's actually more concrete than I think we realize. When you look at the prophets, they didn't just say, hey, guys, God said this. They embodied the message. Haggai's name comes from the word chag, which is festival. And it's probably meant to prick their conscience that you can't celebrate one of the great pilgrim feasts to the temple when there's no temple. So my name is Festival at the Temple, and we don't have a temple. That ought to remind you. One of the more sad concrete images of a prophet is that of Hosea. God's message through Hosea to the people is, you are like an unfaithful wife. And Hosea is called to embody that. God tells Hosea, go pick a wife of harlotry. That's not a rule to follow. But for Hosea it is. You go marry a wife of harlotry, and when she cheats on you and sells herself, I want you to go love her again. Go buy her back off prostitution, off the street, off the boulevard. Bring her back home and not just tolerate her, but call her dirty names because you know what she did. I want you to love her. And this is an embodied picture of God's love for his people. That's how, it's not saying we should all do that. God knows we, honestly, we're human. We, we can't do that. We can't do what Hosea did. By God's grace, some do. Others like, no way. 
But that's how much God loves. And it speaks of the nature of a prophet. They are the mouth of God. And the reason I'm pointing this out is because for Christians who believe that the Old Testament has been fulfilled and brought to its climax in Jesus Christ, this metaphor of the idea of the mouth of God being incarnate, embodied, comes to its fullness in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the prophet par excellence. He doesn't just partially embody the Word of God for three months. That's how long Haggai's ministry was. Three months, that's it. Three-month ministry. But that John says in John chapter 1, Jesus is the very Word of God. Paul says further that it's through Jesus, through Jesus the Word, that God made the world. That Jesus is actually the instrument of creation. And so it's important to point out that when we see Jesus and we see these claims that the apostles make about Jesus in the New Testament, that they are fulfilling themes and metaphors and ideas and positions and functions that we see all throughout the Old Testament. They're they're new in Jesus, but they're not entirely new. We've seen them before in lesser ways. So a prophet is the mouthpiece of God. I've kind of spoken already to why prophets were needed. Prophets were needed essentially because of sin. We don't all have a perfect relationship with God. We don't have right ideas about God. Part of us, we're mistaken. We just have bad ideas. doesn't necessarily make you a horrible person. Just have bad ideas about God. But then there are bad parts about us. Evil. We are capable of great evil. A lot of Americans, modern people, don't think that they're capable of great evil. But given the right circumstances, I would say anybody is capable of doing evil. You throw someone in a horrible wartime circumstance where there's no accountability, they're starving, their people are dying, whatever else, all kinds of atrocity becomes possible. And human history has borne that out. That's not just some conspiracy theory. It's just simply history. It's happened over and over and over, and we all need to learn. We are capable of doing it. And that's our best guarantee we won't do it again. Is that as human beings, we are capable of great evil. Because of that, God needs to send someone who will bring an undefiled, untainted, unadulterated message of God. So that's the point of a prophet, why a prophet is necessary, and ultimately that's why the Bible is necessary. We need God to open up God's heart and reveal himself to us. Otherwise, we're kind of left, "Ah, I think you're like this, I think you're like that. Uh, It turns out my idea was right here. It turns out, oh wow, I was way off there. That is why the scriptures are so important. They They gather up what is our otherwise fragmented and tainted pictures of God, and it reveals that which is actually true about God. So let's get into the meat of it, which is going to be verse 2 and 3. It says, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come. This is what they're saying. The Lord's complaint. This people says, The time has not come that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses, and yet this temple lies in ruins? The chief complaint of God to Israel through Haggai, I believe, is the same complaint God would have with the American church today. We are putting our own lives, our own houses, 
and our own families before the Lord. According to a Pew Forum report published in 2018, Americans were asked to state in their own words what makes their lives feel meaningful, fulfilling, or satisfying. Was the number one answer God? No. What was it? Family. At 69%, number one by far, the answer was family. The same thing Israel was saying about why they didn't get around to doing what God wanted. Was God number two, do you suppose? No. The number two was career at 34%. Was God number three? No. Number three was money. Finally, God, in the broadest conceivable terms, whether it's the God of the Bible or not, 20%. Now, it's very interesting to me if you cross-reference this with simply the percentage of Americans today who claim to be Christian, it's at about 71%. So you've got 71% of Americans say they're Christian, not just religious, but Christian, and then you have 69% where God's not first. And it makes you kind of wonder, well, as Christians, what God, which God are you worshiping? Because the one here, he's pretty ticked when he's not first. When you say, well, I got my own life to take care of. I can't be bothered with the gospel, can't be bothered with Jesus, can't be bothered with the ministry, because I'm busy. I got my family life, we're building a new house, I'm putting up new panels on the wall. Like, they, the ancient Israelites understood this. And it's, it can be taken probably at least a couple of ways. Um, when it says you're, they were concerned with their house, it could be a metonymy. And metonymy, of course, is when we take one word that's related to another and we use it as a substitute. So the idea of house doesn't have to mean literally your inanimate structure with a roof. Who lives in the house? Your family, the, the people that you love. They can be number one. That's what house can mean. You simply put your nuclear family or whoever that is, number one in your life above God. But what's interesting is for sure it can also be here taken as the, they were literally obsessed with their physical houses. The adjective, your paneled houses. Paneled. So this isn't like, oh, they, you know, these are bad, horrible people because they wanted a roof and they just wanted to keep rain and sun and whatever off of them. No, they went beyond the necessities and became obsessed with just adding more and more. These were paneled houses because God knows you have to have a paneled house. Can't just be regular walls. It has to be really nice, expensive cedar from Lebanon. You all know cedar from Lebanon is good. You probably don't know that. But, you know, nevertheless, that's the idea. They were really getting into it. Don't Orange County people do the same thing? Get absolutely obsessed with our house. At first, it's like, oh, I just need a place to live. Oh, finally, we got a place to live. Now it's like, oh, you know, we need bigger windows. We need this. We need our yard to be bigger. We need this. And they get absolutely obsessed. And when you ask them, can you help out with the gospel ministry? Can you serve Jesus? Can you participate in the life of church? No, no, I, I got a paneled house to build. Orange County people are not that different from the people that Haggai was called to speak to. Here's the fact of the matter. We make time to do what we want. You do. We make time to do what we want. When we say we don't have time for the Lord, it's a little misleading. Partly true. The only way that's true, if you claim to be someone who knows God, 
in Jesus Christ. To say you don't have time for God is if God's not a priority. If you've done everything else on your list and go, oh, I'm out of time. No more. But the God of the Bible, again, calls over and over again. And I know some people don't like this. Apparently, Oprah Winfrey says she left the church for this. Okay, throw it out there. She says she heard one day in a sermon that God was a jealous God. And she said, well, I can't follow a jealous God. God is jealous. Now, of course, she didn't realize it's God is jealous for you, not of you. It's a very important distinction. The God of the Bible is not jealous of, oh, I wish I had that, or oh, you're doing... He's a jealous God for you. When he sees you sinning, ruining your life, missing the meaning and purpose of your life, wasting your days, your life is hevel. As Kohelet says in Ecclesiastes, it's just vapor, and you're just grabbing onto it, hoping it'll stay this time, hoping it'll stay, and it keeps slipping through your fingers. God is jealous for you, and he says, I want to bring you back to me because I'm what lasts forever. I am who I am. Everything else is transient in this world. I am the yesterday, today, and forever. Bring you back to myself. That is what God wants to do. So, we have time for the Lord if we prioritize the Lord. That's a fact of the matter. If we prioritize the Lord, we will have time for the Lord. Now again, what else was going on here besides the fact, uh, you know, the idolatry of the nuclear family, besides the idea of materialism, oh, I'm just going to build a bigger house? There's some other things going on that I, I think are a little less gross and a little more understandable. For one thing, it doesn't say there's this outright refusal. Notice this. Because good church people, I call them church people, right? Just go to church. May or may not necessarily be a Christian, but I go to church and on a poll I would identify as Christian rather than other, Okay. So they go to church. And they wouldn't necessarily say, I refuse, I reject the claims of God in the Bible. But what they say to themselves that works out to be the same thing, I've done this many times, that sounds good. I'll get to that tomorrow. Then tomorrow comes. And you say again, I'll get serious about the Lord tomorrow. Oh yeah, you know, that's a good idea. Oh yeah, preacher. Preach on, preacher. Amen. I'll get around to doing that. Tomorrow. And tomorrow turns into 10 years. Into 20 years. Into 30. You can really understand, you know, because sometimes you look at Israel and they're doing, you know, the Bible really is not flattering, is it? It shows all the bad, horrible things they did. And sometimes readers, modern readers, look down and, oh, I can't believe, how come they didn't understand? God's just doing that. It's like, we do the same things. And I think it's very understandable to, to be con convicted by the Spirit in a Bible study, for example. You, you really do. You feel it. It's piercing your heart. And you know it's God talking to you. And you know you need to stop doing that. And you know you need to start doing that. And, then the, and, then, and you couldn't just outright say no, because that's like, oh, that's blasphemy. I can't do that. But you've got another little convenient way of getting out of it. And it's, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll put it off. So one thing that Israel was doing at this time was simply saying, now's not the time. That's what they were saying. Now's not the time. There'll be a better time. You know what I found? There's never a better time than now. You know, for me, especially when it comes to serving the Lord, I mean, I've always had a reason in like every season of life of why I can't. You know, when I was single, I'm too busy like 
trying to find my wife, you know what I mean? Like, you know, dating and, uh, you know, doing whatever. And then I'm married. I'm like, oh, well, now I, I can't do it because I'm married and I have responsibilities. And, oh, and now I have kids. Oh, now I'm not sleeping at night. Kids are screaming and crying and pooping their diaper. Now I can't. Oh, you know, well, it's like I have this job and I don't make enough money. Oh, now I make too much money and now I'm worried about where all the money is and I'm preoccupied with my properties and this. It's like you can always get to some place where you say, if I just weren't in the place I am now, now I can do it and it never comes. Because I believe there is no better time to respond to God than now. As one preacher said, God is ever concerned with the ever-present. The appeal to Scripture over and over and over and over is today. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as you did in the wilderness. Today is the voice of the Lord. Today we must hear it. So in order to experience revival of soul and spirit, love for God must come before every other earthly thing, no matter how good. I hope it's obvious that anything you know to be evil should be out of your life. If you're doing evil, and you, and you know it's evil, I don't have to argue with you. You, you know there's certain things. They're bad. They're not good. They're evil. You get rid of that. That should be elementary, 101. But what's difficult is what do you do with good? Because the Bible doesn't say family's evil. I mean, family's kind of central to the Bible. It's very important. Nuclear family, that's important. You hear a lot of that rhetoric in American Christianity. Family, family, family. The point of it is that even these goods, which are really good, your family, need to be subordinate to the love for God. And it's easy to switch those around to make family God and God kind of, I use him to help my family. He becomes a little idol on my shelf, and I pray to him when I need to, to keep what's really God, my family, in the order that I want it to be in. Now, as Christians reading the Old Testament, we have to constantly ask ourselves, now, are we in this place in the story? Do we put ourselves in the place of Israel in 520 B.C. and go, oh, well, they were neglecting literally building this inanimate temple, and that's what we all need to do right now, or this is going to be a building fund sermon. I need pledges. We're going to go buy property, and we're going to build our temple. No. Because the New Testament says that the Hebrew Bible, the Old, has been fulfilled in Jesus and that these signs that were real, but they were pointing somewhere else, have been fulfilled in Jesus. And so the New Testament says is true of the temple itself. The New Testament teaches that a true and better temple has come. As a matter of fact, this is one of the most threatening things that Jesus said. And it was used to get the death penalty on him, by the way. One of the most threatening things Jesus said was to suggest that the true temple, the place where the Creator God, His glory dwelled on earth, was no longer the temple at Jerusalem, but was Himself. Look at John 2, 13 through 22. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When Jesus made a whip of cords, here's meek and mild Jesus about to kick some serious butt. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the changers' money and flipped over the tables. Imagine that scene. Jesus, bar fight, roadhouse blues, Patrick Swayze. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. 
do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Jesus is the true and faithful Israelite who puts God's house before any other house. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? These are radical things. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He's literally standing next to the temple. Remember, he just flipped over. He's in the temple. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Jesus is standing next to the temple, the place where God's glory dwelt. But we know from Ezekiel, the glory had departed. Ichabod, the glory is gone. You may be doing religious business, but God is no longer present in your worship. But there was a promise that the glory would come back from the east. The east is where Jesus rode down on the day of his triumphal entry. The glory prophesied in Ezekiel returning from the east into the temple. And there Jesus is standing next to the temple saying, I am the place where heaven and earth meet. I am the place where the glory of God dwells. So for Christians reading at this point in God's big story of the Bible, we don't go build a physical structure, although there's nothing wrong with that. Some Christians have gone way the other way and they're like against nice buildings and stuff. I think that's a mistake. I think architecture and space matters, right? I think Winston Churchill is the one who said, we build spaces and the spaces build us. There's an impact that space has on how we think and who we are. But the emphasis now is on a personal relationship with God and Jesus Christ. Where Jesus is... And where people trust in him for salvation, that is where the new temple is. And as we are studying in 1 Peter, this is the very language that Peter, a disciple of Jesus, said. He said that you are the temple of the living God. You are. And Jesus is the cornerstone, the weight-bearing cornerstone that supports the entire structure. So we now are the temple. Jesus is the cornerstone. So to prioritize the temple in a New Testament sense is to make Jesus number one. And it is to prioritize the new family of God in Jesus, which Paul says is both Jew and Gentile alike with no barriers. No difference between Jew or Greek, male nor female, Christ is now all in all. So we are now the people of God. It means to prioritize Jesus and his family, the church. I also don't think many conservative American Christians think about this. But at the time, Jesus was seen as a social threat to the nuclear family. Matthew 12, 46 through 50, Jesus said this. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside, wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside, wanting to speak to you. Jesus replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers pointing to his disciples 
Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You can see how conservatives could be scared of that. Because he's saying the nuclear family is no longer the defining institution. It is a relationship to me. There's a new spiritual family. Now, to be clear, because that is very radical, and it still is, but that doesn't mean abandon your, the traditional family or nuclear family, but what it means is you can't make it an idol. It is not number one anymore. It matters, but you now have two families. 1 Timothy 5 makes this very clear. Yes, we have a spiritual family, and we have to love and care for one another like a family, and they need to be prioritized, but you also have your nuclear family, and you need to take care of them. It's actually godless for a Christian to have family, nuclear family, and not take care of them, to not love one another and be there for them, whether they're a Christian or not. You need to care for them. So we have two families, but guess which one tends to get neglected the most? The spiritual family, because it's most natural to care for those who are just like you, physically, genetically, biologically, stick to your group. But this new family of God is calling people to something that's higher and it's universal in scope. So Jesus was seen as a radical threat to society as people knew it. So putting the Lord's house first looks like putting Jesus first and prioritizing the church, which is the family of God. Verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. The Hebrew is much more vivid and profound than just consider your ways. Literally, it is set your heart upon your ways. What does that mean, set your heart upon your ways? It is a call to a deep reflection upon one's course of life. One Old Testament scholar put it this way, this phrase, consider your ways in the Hebrew, means to reflect deeply. It means to look within your own heart, to bring it out into the open, to study your own life and to see it as it really is. But how much do people do that in the modern world today? How much time for deep reflection on your own life, your heart, your motivations, not just what you do, although I think we don't even do that enough, but how much time do we spend as a culture on why we do what we do? Our motivations, our priorities, sadly, I think, not nearly enough. We are an extremely busy, busy, busy society and we don't have the time to consider our ways, to reflect deeply on the course of our lives. There was a book written, I mean, it's been a while now, 1985. It's crazy to think it's been so long, 34 years. There was a book written by an American writer named Neil Postman. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He wrote a book entitled, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he got the idea for that book based off, he was invited as a journalist to be a part of a panel in 1984 to discuss George Orwell's book, 1984. And for those of you that maybe have forgotten or you're not familiar, in 1984, George Orwell sort of predicted a future in which tyrannical groups control all the media and everything else and tell people what to think. That was his vision. But there was an alternate vision around the same time by Aldous Huxley in his book, A Brave New World. And he presented a very different view. He said, the future won't be people, you know, these tyrants controlling everything. It'll be everyone is obsessed with entertainment. 
They will literally be amused to death. No critical thinking will take place. No one will need to control them because they will simply give up control with the need to be entertained. And Postman said, if you look at those two things, in the Western world, Huxley's account of the future seems to be most right. You look at our news shows, some of these topics that are coming up in in politics, for example, that probably require many, many, many hours of serious dialogue, serious research, serious findings, and in the news, whether conservative or liberal, you have two talking heads come on, they nail it for 30 seconds, and then you slam the other side, and that's it. That's political discourse. And really, again, we can talk about why, why do all the people in the media have to be attractive, you know, why, you know, and popping in with the news, and it's about money and whatever sells and all this stuff. And he was saying, this is what's going to be wrong with the future. We have people who think they're thinking when they're not. And people want to be entertained. It's no longer the substance of your ideas, but the way you say it. If you have a cute little jingle as a politician and people count on, that's what they want. doesn't matter if you actually know real answers to real problems. I mean, to be honest, some of the most brilliant people I've ever read, on, if you hear them, they're boring as heck. Like, like, you know, they would put, you know, you would rather watch paint dry than listen to these people speak. But if you could just do the work, if you could just bring yourself to bear it, you would find some of the most profound wisdom for solving some of the problems in our world. But we're being entertained to death. We need to consider our ways. We need to make time to reflect deeply on the course of our lives. The last section is verses 6 through 11. He says, you have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put them into a bag with holes. Does anyone know what that's like? Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Here it is again. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Says the Lord of hosts. Because my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, and whatever the ground brings forth on men and livestock and all the labor of your hands. What we see here is that failure to put the Lord first leads to an empty life. There's two kind of things that Haggai's saying. One may not pertain to us necessarily because it's tied to the covenant in Deuteronomy. This cursing of the ground and the cursing of the wine and the cursing of of all this, it was tied directly to Deuteronomy and the covenant that God made with Moses at Sinai. That if Israel did this, there would be certain blessings and they dwell in this land and this is how it would go. And if you didn't, then you won't dwell in the land and this is how it's going to go. So that may or may not necessarily apply to us. For example, some of you, you might not be putting the Lord first at all. He's just not that important. But maybe you're successful. You're doing well. You're making good money and and this and that. So you go, oh, well, that must not apply to me. But here's sort of the universal abiding thing that I think is true. And that's this idea that's also present here of eating, but you're not full. You're drinking it, but, but you're losing the taste. There's a difference between, you know, you know, sort of failing and succeeding outwardly and the inward ability to enjoy what one has. 
we know countless stories. I know it's almost cliche to bring them up, but we have countless stories of movie stars and you know, very, very rich people who, to get up in the morning, have to take all kinds of illegal drugs because they hate their lives. Their lives are empty. People that commit suicide, and suicide is on the rise in the United States. People that want to end their lives, and you look at it and go, oh, well, maybe that's because they failed. But then how do you explain that successful people feel like they're not living a life worth living? There's something more going on than just the outward appearance of whether you're succeeding or failing. It's this idea of the ability to enjoy what one has. And that this is something that too comes from God. One of the Proverbs, it's a great little proverb, better is a little with contentment than a lot without it. That contentment is really the secret, if you think about it. That you can have a lot. I know even talking to different people, they've, they've said, you know, I make a lot of money, I have a very big business, it's international, all this. You know, looking back, I was happier when I just got going. When my wife and I were like barely paying the bills and living in a lousy little apartment with meth addict neighbors and parties all night long. And, you know, we were hating it, you know, that, that, at that time. But we actually look back with this fondness because we were content with little. Every little check that we got mattered. Now it's like, eh, whatever. Uh, you know, $100,000, that's nothing, whatever. Better is a little with contentment. This idea of satisfaction. If we're finding emptiness, that it kind of doesn't matter what you have or you don't have, or who you're with or not with, if there's this abiding satisfaction or dissatisfaction, if we take the time to consider our ways, if there's this abiding emptiness and futility to life, the Bible says it's because it only comes, satisfaction comes ultimately from the Lord. You were made in His image, and you will never become who you're meant to be until you know Him that we need to come to God. We need to be shaped by God. We are meant to put Him first. It's the beauty of Augustine's famous statement so many centuries ago. Our hearts are made for you, and our hearts are ever restless until they come to rest in thee. It sort of summed up Augustine's old thing. I tried, I tried every other religion. I tried, going, I tried Manichaeism. I tried Gnosticism. I tried this. I tried that. And my heart was restless. And finally, my heart came to rest when I found Jesus Christ. Or better yet, when I found that He had found me. So the first step in the blueprint of revival is making sure your foundation is firm. What are you building your life on? In Matthew 7, 24 through 27, it's a famous story, you probably know it, but Jesus said this, Therefore, everyone who hears the words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. So consider your ways this morning. What is your foundation for life? 
What are you building everything out? You've got a lot of material in your life. What's your foundation? What is it all resting on? It may not be bad. It may be family. It may be career. It may be money. Now, those things might make for a good frame or a good door or a good window, but all of those things make bad foundations. Jesus is the true and better foundation for life and for life eternal. Let's make sure today we reflect and build our lives on Jesus by putting Jesus first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning. I mean, I thank you that we're enabled to call you Father because of what Jesus has done for us. That you've redeemed us from sin, from the curse of death. You've overruled death in your resurrection so that life has the last word, not death. And I thank you that you love us enough to tell us the hard truth about life. You know that we don't want you to be number one. You know, for some of us, we didn't even want you in our life at all. We did whatever we could to hide, to make fig leaves, to hide behind trees or whatever it was. Others of us, we couldn't do that. But we certainly can make you second or third or fourth. But you said that we must love you with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength. We are to love you first. And loving you first, we are given your heart, and we are then enabled to truly love our neighbor as ourself. And so, Lord, this morning I just pray you would enable all of us to consider and reflect on our ways. Is Jesus number one? Is the household of God a priority in my life? Or have I been saying to myself, now is not the time? And we've busied ourselves with other things, but we found that those things are empty. And the harder we work, the more empty we feel. Help us to see that Jesus is the answer. Help us to come to him in spirit and in truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.